Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and open them to Acts chapter 17. And uh, on Friday, I was visited with a little stomach bug that took me out Friday and Saturday. So if I start to look like I'm getting a little woozy, I'm just going to grab that chair over here. And if after church I'm running out, don't give me a hug. <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to be touching many of you this morning. I don't want to pass this on. How many of you had the stomach bug flow through your house here? There's lots of hands going up. Yeah, it's, it's going around. So, uh, yeah, keep the fellowship non-contact today, and it might help the situation. Well, what a great song. Thanks for introducing that song, Matt. I really like that. And, and uh, this morning, we're going to be looking here in Acts chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 34. And I'd like to just read the passage we will be studying here this morning. And then uh, we'll pray and get into it here. We're picking up where we left off last week, where Paul was in Athens. And uh, he's brought up to the Areopagus to, to present, actually, a talk on the resurrection. So that's what this whole talk is setting up because he was asked to, to define the resurrection. And I'm going to read to you the passage we'll be studying and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll see how incredible this is. It says, starting in so Acts 17, starting in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine power is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he has commanded all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagate, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this great opportunity to engage this text. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of just being under your word, for celebrating your table, for singing some great lyrics to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. Now, Lord, may this passage wash over us and, and, and give us wisdom that we might live in this world, that we might engage it, that we might stand boldly 
and be able to be with confidence, be able to talk about you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I've got a scenario I want to run by you. It's totally made up. It's really dumb. It's really silly, and I know it. Okay, but I, but I want you to just think about this for a moment. I want you to just picture yourself in front of the Supreme Court building, and uh, you're sharing the gospel with somebody in front of the Supreme Court. And uh, one of the, ju- the, the Supreme Court justices is, wa- is walking up the steps of the su- Supreme Court building, hears you sharing the gospel, and says to you, hey, what you're saying is kind of crazy, it's a little silly, it's a little off the wall, but I'd love for you to address the court and tell the court what you're saying. And so you're brought into the Supreme Court, you're able to stand before the justices with the gallery behind you of people, and you get to tell people about Jesus. You get to tell the court about Jesus. <laughs> Cheryl's volunteering. She's taking volunteers, right? Cheryl's volunteering. Now, now, if you think about that moment, now, the chances of that happening are, you know, probably greater than the Bears winning the Super Bowl this next year, but, but uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I say that as a Bears fan, but that's just the way it is. Um, but the reality of that situation, picture that, or, or if you were to dial that, that, that situation back a little bit, maybe to something a little more crazy. Ah, thank you, Jeff. Um, if you were to dial that back and, and you were to say, what would happen if you were brought before the courthouse in, in DeKalb County? Or what would happen if you were brought to the chamber, city chambers of, of your own city to be able to talk about Jesus? Those kind of moments would be pretty intimidating. And the reason why I'm picking it, you can tell why I'm using these illustrations, is because this is what's, what's going on in Paul's life, right? He is now being brought into uh, an official temple, and he's brought in with the official leaders of this temple, and some of these people have positions of authority within the community because he has been out sharing the gospel. Some people heard what he had to say, and they said, we want you to come and tell us about this thing called the resurrection of Jesus. Now, here you are, you're in Athens, the most religious city in the world, it is, remember we talked about last week, there were sayings about Athens that it was easier to find a, 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 an idol than it was to find a human in Athens. It was just crazy how, how religious that city was, how polytheistic it was. And now you have to tell people who know nothing about God, you've got to tell them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's actually a very complex thing to do, if you think about it. It's complex because for this reason. I can talk to you guys about Jesus. I can explain to you the resurrection because you have a Christian worldview. You believe there's a God who created heaven and earth. You believe he's revealed himself in his word. You believe he's revealed himself in his son. And so we have that basic foundation. And so I can sit here and just explain to you certain things that you may or may not know. And, and, and you would be blessed by it. And I think if you could maybe go back 50 years ago, you could even go down the street and find somebody who didn't know Jesus, but they still had a basic worldview that there was a God who created heavens and the earth. I even think about this. I was reading some stuff from the 1960s about uh, stuff atheists wrote in the 1960s, and, uh, and I was reading some of this stuff, and I was thinking to myself, even the atheists in the 1960s had a Christian worldview because the God that they didn't believe was the right God, Okay? Their definition of God that they were rejecting was the right definition of God. So, so even, even the atheists 40, 50 years ago held to the same basic foundation of an understanding of there's a creator, he's revealed himself, that Jesus came, he died on a cross, these kinds of things. How do you explain the resurrection of Jesus Christ to people who don't even have an understanding of who God is? Now I would tell you, 
But that is the world we're going to live, that we live in today. That if you were even just, we don't need to be standing in front of the Supreme Court, but we definitely could be uh, dealing with anybody at work, walking down the street, at a restaurant. And I would suggest that people don't even have a basic understanding of who God is anymore. Even the God that the atheists are rejecting isn't even the right God. And so this particular passage becomes very relevant to us today, I believe, because it tells us how, you, how we are to explain Christ to people who don't have a basic Christian worldview, a biblical worldview. Excuse me a second. And we're going to see Paul do this. What Paul has to do, because he's been brought here to explain the resurrection, but before he gets to the resurrection, he has to first establish who God is. He's got to start there. And he needs to set the table. This is who God is. Before we even get to the resurrection, we have to have an understanding of of divinity, of God himself, and how we relate to God. And so Paul likes to do what, what he's doing, what I like to call thinking like a missionary. He's walking into the situation and he's saying, okay, this is how, what they think about God. What I have to do is debunk that. I have to reverse that. Because you see, when man makes religion, he always puts himself at the center of the religion. And so, so what he'll never do is create a religion where God's at the center of it. It's always going to be man's at the center of it. And you'll see how he does this. And, and so what he's doing is he has to say, okay, what I have to do is shift the center. I have to take you from you being at the center of the religion to now putting God at the center of the world. And then from that point, we will then move to Jesus and his resurrection and his authority over the planet. And I would suggest to you that that's probably, this passage, probably something we're going to have to learn how to do in the generation that we live in because we, we don't live in a world where God is even understood anymore. So we're going to see this today. We're going to see Paul doing, basically, flipping the world. He's thinking like a missionary, and we'll see this here. And then we're going to see him deal with some, with God himself and how he's flipping their view of God. He's basically going to talk about who depends on whom, who serves whom, who made whom. He's going to start dealing with these issues of, 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 of basically removing man from the center of their religious position to putting God at the center. And then once he establishes God at the center, he then takes it right to Jesus, the resurrection, and his authority over the planet. There's a lot in here. It's going to feel a little overwhelming, like, boy, there is no way I could do this. But what I'm going to do today is just kind of unload the dump truck on you. But then this is just something that we should be praying and studying and and beginning to start meditating on this passage. This should not be the only time that you're in Acts 17. That you should spend time thinking through this and engaging it because what Paul did here, I believe, is going to be our evangelistic method in the culture we live in. I believe it's going to be the way that we have to operate in the world we live in today. So let's look at it here. Let's look at Paul thinking like a missionary. Look at with me at verses 22 and 23 again. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So remember, Paul's in Athens. His, his spirit is just overwhelmed by the, the, all the pagan religion that's around him. 
He's in a synagogue telling people about the resurrection. He's out in the marketplace telling people about the resurrection. Some of the religious people come by and they go, that. Some said, boy, that's just like crazy talk. You know, it's just kind of babbling talk. Other people said, that's pretty interesting, this idea of, of, a, of a god, you know, kind of rising from the dead. We've never heard this. Let's bring them to the Areopagus. What is the Areopagus? It's a temple. You could actually get, see pictures of it on the internet. It's a, it's, a, it's a hill in Athens, and now it's just a bunch of rocks. But then it was a big temple. And in the temple was just hundreds and hundreds of gods, hundreds of idols, I should say, just, just all over the place. And it was the place where they would come and listen to philosophers talk about ideas, talk about religious ideas, talk about uh, spiritual ideas. Philosophy in that day was taught a little bit different than the philosophy of our day. In that day, philosophy had a little bit of a moral tenor to it, how you should live, how you should worship. Today, philosophy is a little bit more of like just kind of doubting everything. But, but in this particular day, it's, it was more of, of people kind of putting forth worldviews, putting forth ideas. And so they say, we're going to let Paul come in here and address us. Now, here's what Paul has to do. As he's standing in this very religious place, what he can't do is talk at them. And there's a reason why he can't talk at them. Right? It'd be easy just to stand up and just start unloading on them a bunch of facts. But there's a, there's a danger in doing that. Missionaries have to think a little bit differently than, 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 than we used to think when we would evangelize. When we evangelize, we can just kind of walk down the street and talk to people about God, and, uh, but, but that's changing. Because now we have to start thinking like a missionary. And thinking like a missionary means that you've got to start at the point where the person's at and move them towards Jesus. And I want to tell you why you have to do it this way. I'm going to give you an illustration. David Sitton, the founder of Tevri Tribe, he shares a story where Missionaries were going into a village in, in Papua New Guinea. And when they went into the village, the village was practicing um, polygamy. But their polygamy practice was pretty disgusting because these guys were taking these like 12-year-old girls and making them their wives. And, and so, you know, they get guys with 5, 6, 7, 10, 12 wives, and they're all young kids. And, and you know, you, and just how horrible that was, the breakdown of the family, everything that was happening. And so the missionaries went and said, hey, this is wrong practice. This is a wrong practice. God designed it. One man, one woman. This is what God designed. And they, they were just proclaiming this to the, to the tribal elders. And the tribal elders said, you know what? You convinced us. We will officially make polygamy illegal. Boom, they did it. They made it illegal. The next day, the missionaries get up. They're walking down to back into the village again. And they're seeing all these women tied to trees. Tied, bound to trees. They said, what's going on here? They said, well, they're going to kill us. So the chief, he made it illegal, but here's what he said. He said, okay, pick your favorite wife, kill all the other ones. And they're like, stop, no, 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 no. You can't do that either. Okay, that's wrong too. Now what happened? You see, they came with the right practice. Polygamy is wrong. But they forgot the worldview of the person who was listening to it. So they took the practice, they attached it to their worldview, and then applied it through the lens of their own worldview. And rather than conversion, you got what was called syncretism, when you start adding things to religions rather than converting, rather than changing, being transformed. And they realized as missionaries, you know, before we start removing practices, we got to start dealing with worldviews. We got to start dealing with how you view God. When you're evangelizing somebody who has a different worldview about God, you can say whatever you want, but they could just add it to their existing worldview. 
You don't want them to add Jesus to their worldview. You want them to repent of their worldview and embrace a whole new view. So Paul's first task is to make sure that they, that they understand the right worldview about God. And so how does Paul do this? He enters into their moment. He's in their, he's in their temple. He sees the vast array of hundreds of idols around there, and he sees one pedestal that's empty with an inscription to an unknown God. Why would they have that pedestal there? Well, because they believe that there's hundreds and hundreds and thousands of gods out there, and they know that they're humans, and so they, they, they can't possibly get them all. And part of a polytheistic religion is that the more gods that you have, the more power you have. Right? Remember the Israelites and the Canaanites, and the Canaanites steal the ark and put it in, the temple, in their temple? Believing that if we steal the gods of our enemies, we get more powerful. So they have this you know, big temple. They've got all these idols around them. And they want to make sure their bases are covered, so they got one pedestal to the one God they don't know. I'm sure we're missing one, but we want his power too. So Paul finds the weakness within their belief system, and he starts there. He starts at the weakness. There's one thing you're missing here. Okay, and I want to I I start where you're at, and I'm going to move you to a right worldview. But the key to thinking like a missionary is to be observant enough to know the weakness of that one worldview. What is the weakness? So we start there. This is what Paul does. And so what he says to them, what you worship in ignorance, I am now going to proclaim. I'm going to define this God to you. He's thinking like a missionary. Now, let's look at what he does. Okay, it's very interesting what he does. What he's going to do is he's going to deal with three issues about God, about their worldview about God. And he's going to turn them upside down. He's going to basically got this pedestal. So let's pretend like this is it. It's an empty pedestal. And he says, all right, here's the deal. You have this pedestal to an unknown God. I will define him for you. And the first thing we're going to deal with is the way you think about God and how God depends on you or whether you depend on God. What do I mean by this? Let's look at verse 24. Okay, because he's dealing with this first issue. Who depends upon whom? Verse 24. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it. Okay, so here's what he said. I'm going to proclaim this to you. I'm going to tell you about this God. And then what Paul's going to do, by the way, in all of these statements, is he's going to make a positive and a negative statement. He's just going to kind of, kind of shaping this idea for them. So it begins with a positive statement. He says, this God right here is the one who made the world and everything in it. Right there, he has absolutely created a whole new view of God that, uh, that would have blown them away. It would have blown them away. It's a bold statement. Why is it a bold statement? Well, you got to look at the negative statement for it to make sense. The negative statement is this, being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. Greek religion says that the, the spirits are out there. They're just floating around. Unless you build them a temple... They can't come to you. They're dependent upon you to be in your presence. And so what we have to do is build this temple. And once we build the right temple and, and we get the statues here that they can inhabit, then the gods can come and be with us. What does that worldview say? 
that worldview basically teaches that the gods are dependent upon us to exist in this world. Right? They need us. If we don't build them the temple, they can't live here. Paul flips it. And he says, I want to just tell you something. Actually, God made the earth. And he made everything in the earth. And he's the Lord of the earth. Which means he doesn't need you to build him a temple. To exist. God is not here. So, so here's how he flips it. God is not here because you built him a temple. You are here because he made you an earth. He's not dependent upon you for his existence. You're dependent upon him for your existence. That's who this God is. Isn't that incredible? He shifts it. Boom. Makes the turn. And he says, all right, guys, you have to understand something. You didn't build God a home. He built you a home. You didn't build God a temple. He made you this earth. And he made everything in the earth. Who's dependent upon whom? I'll tell you who's dependent upon whom. You're dependent upon him for your existence. He's not dependent upon you. See, he's got, remember, when man creates a religion, it's funny, he can always put himself in the, in the center of the religion. Even though you might have a temple, a beautiful temple with all these idols everywhere, and you might say, wow, they, they have gods at the center of their whole life. They've got temples everywhere. Yet at the very core of their religion is what? Well, these gods can't exist unless I build them a temple. That's pretty powerful of man, isn't it? That the gods are that impotent, that they cannot move unless you build them a temple. He's like, no, that's not the case. God is not here because you built him a temple. You're here because God made you a planet. That's how he starts. Who's dependent upon whom? Now he takes it further. The next thing he's going to deal with, who serves whom? I thought about this last night. I would actually change that from serves to provides for. Who provides for whom? I think that's really a better statement. Who provides for whom? Notice what he says. Verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul now has a negative statement, right? He begins with a negative statement. He's not served by you. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need this. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. What's, what's their thought? Well, in pagan theology, you serve the gods. You give the gods food. You give them money. You give them the best of what you have because they need them. That's what, and in exchange, they're going to give you, share some of their power with you. And in that type of relationship, you serve them, they serve you, you serve them, they serve you. But if you don't serve them, they can't serve you. If you don't bring the offering of gold and money and silver and animals and, and blood and things like that, if you don't bring this to them, then you can't unlock their blessing towards you. And he's saying, this isn't God. The God that you worship in ignorance actually isn't requiring an offering. He's not served by you. Here's the positive statement. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. See, here's the reality. You're breathing because he gave you breath. He's not, and Paul is not saying he only gives it to Jews or to Christians or to people who have a theistic worldview. He's saying, 
God has given to all humanity the ability to breathe, the ability to eat. He's given them food and water. He's given them rain. He gives them cattle. He gives them all kinds of things. He has provided, notice this, life, breath, and then just to summarize, everything, right? You get it all from God. Do you realize something? Your view of God is that you have to unleash his power to get blessing from you. I'm telling you this unknown God has already showered blessing upon you and you don't even really know who he is yet. Because you got up this morning and you took a breath and you took a cup of water. That's what you did. See, here's what he does. He provides for you. You are dependent upon him for everything. He serves you. He provides for you. This is who this God is. You see, I don't want you, it's like telling these, these Greek people, do not think about God with, with you being at the center of this. Think about it, the fact that he made a planet and he's providing everything that you need to live and survive. That's pretty good stuff, isn't it? Now he's got one more thing he's got to deal with. Okay? We know that we are dependent upon God because he made the planet. He provides for us everything in this planet. And then he gets right down to the point of it. He made us. He made us. This God made us. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. It's a very incredible statement, positive statement. From one man, he made all the nations. Now, what I want you to catch here is here's what he's saying. This is really powerful when you see what he says here. He says, from one man, he made every nation of mankind. So here's what he's saying. God not only made the planet and not only made you, he actually made all of the dividing boundaries that are here. He created the people who live in Africa. He created the people who live in Asia. He created the people who live in Europe. He created the people who live in South America. He created everything about them. He created the boundaries. He created uh, even, even the, their ability to live within those climates. He created their bodies so that some can handle the cold and some can handle the heat, that some won't get skin cancer from constantly being in the sun and, and, and others that can actually be able to survive in, in darker climates where there's not as much sun. He's created all of this. He created the boundaries. He not only that, he determined where you were going to be born. He determined who your parents were going to be. He determined everything. Do you realize that he's saying, the God, God were not only involved in the creation of humanities, involved in every detail of the creation. Now this is amazing because there isn't any pagan Greek teaching that would say God made the heaven and earth. Earth just formed. Some cases, the Stoics kind of believe it, it formed from a series of particles. Others say it formed out of fire. Others say it formed out of some kind of molten lava thing, right? It just, it just formed. They don't, God isn't connected to it. I wonder what it would be like to live in a world where people don't think that God created heaven and earth. That was a joke, by the way. Okay, same world we live in, right? But he comes in and he says, listen, I'm not even going to tell you that God made heaven and earth. I'm going to tell you that God actually allotted every single boundary and detail. 
And he formed it and he placed everybody in their place. He is so intimately involved, he did the whole package. And not only that, he's not even far from you at all. He's not even far from you. He's right there. Some people always say, what about the heathen who doesn't know God? And I say, God's not far from that heathen who doesn't know God. God is everywhere, man. He is everywhere. And he says not only this, that he puts you in this place. Then notice he says in 27 that they should seek God. Notice the ESV says perhaps feel their way toward him. If you have a New American Standard Bible, you might have the word grope in there. Paul's being a little contextual with his people by using this phrase, feel their way towards God. We don't normally use that saying, feel their way. That's not typically a Pauline saying, feeling or groping. But it is a very Greek saying. There's a story uh, a, a Greek uh, mythology that uh, talks about a, a man named Onysius. And Onysius had come back from a battle in this Greek play. And uh, as he's coming back from a battle, he gets trapped in a cave. And when he's trapped in this cave, this giant creature comes up. Does anybody know the Greek mythology, what creature comes up to him? I'm not letting you out of here if somebody doesn't get it right. I'm teasing. The Greek mythology, the, the, the creature that comes up, his name is Cyclops, one eye. And Cyclops is trying to kill Onysius, and they're stuck in this cave. And Onysius doesn't know what to do, so what does he do? He takes a big stick, and he crams it in the eye of Cyclops, blinds him. This is not a true story, by the way, okay? (laughs) And Cyclops then starts reaching out, aggressively groping to try to kill Onysius. And, and, And the Greek word that's there is this word for grope, which is like slamming his hands down and just, you know, trying to go after him. You know, a blind creature trying to kill you. Paul uses that phrase and he says, listen, here's what you have. That God has put you in your place that you would grope for him. That you'd be aggressively searching him. And Paul's saying, I, I think what he's saying is he's looking at all this stuff. He says, this is what this is. You're groping, you're searching. You've got all these gods out here and all this teaching and yet you haven't found him yet. All this is is, is a groping. You're, you're like Cyclops right now. And you're blind. But you need to realize something. And he's quotes from two Greek sources. In him we move and have our being. And he says even one of your own poets quotes a Greek poet that says that we're an offspring of God. It's a random little poet poem. But he's saying even your own guys have gotten close to this. You guys are so close. So close. But realize this, you're not there yet. So what does Paul do? Remember, all of this is setting the table to talk about the resurrection. But first thing he has to do is he has to tell him, listen, you need to understand something. You didn't build a temple for God for him to come and exist. He planned a planet for you, for you to exist. You need to realize something. You don't, you don't serve God and unleash his power on you. Man, he gives you everything that you need to live so that you can have energy. And you need to realize something. You were made by him and put in this place by him and, and he is in control of every detail of your life. So when I talk about God, Paul is saying, I just want you to know this is what I'm talking about. That's what this unknown God is. He's that. Now he's going to apply it. There's three applications. And in his application going to lead them to the resurrection. 
This is pretty amazing. Let's look at the first application. Verse 29. The first application is stop making idols. It's the first application. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. You got to catch the little play on words here. He says, being God's offspring, we ought not to think of God as being our offspring, would be the way you would say that. You know, they would create an idol. This is how we think God would look, and then they believed the Spirit would come into that idol, and there was God. He's saying, actually, God formed you and placed his Spirit in you. You don't create the image of God. You are the image of God. He created you. Stop making idols. This is dumb. Okay? Don't think this way. Okay? Do not think that God can be formed by your creativity. You were formed by God's creativity. Stop thinking that way. You're God's offspring. You came from him. He doesn't come from you. Stop making idols is the implication. Second application. God is patient. Don't push it. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Here's what he's saying. You guys have been groping around, and you know what? God has been really patient with you. He knows you're, you're blind cyclops in a cave. He knows that all of this stuff is your attempt to try to find him. And so he's been really patient. He has not poured out any judgment upon you for your blind attempts to find him. But I'm here to tell you that the time of overlooking is over. And now it is time to repent. Now, what I want you to catch here, and this is really key because this is a little bit different, and, and this is where our brain has to shift a little bit when we think about evangelism. At our culture today. When we think about repentance in our culture, how do we think about repentance? We think about repentance as, I'm going to get you to tell me all the sins that you did. Is this going to fall over on me? I'm going to get you to tell me about all the sins that you did, and then you're going to repent of them. You know, do you drink? Do you smoke? Do you do this? Do you do this? Okay, bring it to Jesus, and he'll tell you to stop. So we think about repentance in individualistic terms. Paul's understanding of repentance, and this is, we saw this in, 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 in Luke, Jesus. When Jesus would preach repentance, it always began not first with your individual sin, but with your view of God. You've got to repent of the fact that you're not seeing God as God. You've got to repent of the fact that you've created a God that's wrong. That your understanding of the, of the divinity is wrong, and that you've placed yourself at the center of divinity. You're building God a home. You're serving God to unleash his power. You're making idols that he can dwell in. That you're like God. Repentance begins, and I believe in our culture, we're not going to begin with just trying to get everybody to list out all the things they've done wrong. I'm not suggesting that we don't confess those sins. But repentance begins, and you see this in both Luke and Acts, always begins with a wrong, your wrong, dealing with your wrong view of God. He's calling you to repent. Notice he hasn't gotten to Jesus yet even. He's calling you to repent because you think God 
is like all of this stuff in this room here, and you're so wrong. You're so wrong. You've missed it. God created this earth. God has provided everything for us to live in this earth, and God has made you that you might serve him. And if you don't believe that, you need to repent. You need to repent. God is patient with you as you're sorting this out, but don't push it because the time of ignorance is going to end. Okay, do you see that? Very important. Repentance begins with the wrong view of God. I think in our evangelism today, we're going to have to bring more of that into the equation. We're going to have to be more of defining who God is as we deal with people. Then thirdly, the third application. Okay, so you can see how this grows, how this application grows. It's pretty cool, right? Stop making your idols. God's patient. Don't push it. Why? Here's our third application. God appointed a judge over all humanity. Now he gets to the resurrection. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And for this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So God has fixed the day that the world will be judged. It's a fixed day. There's a day of judgment coming. This God who made the world, gives you everything, and made you is going to bring judgment. If you don't repent and, and believe this about this God, you need to realize that a day of judgment is coming, and the judge of this day is Jesus. And the way that we know he's the judge is that God raised him from the dead. Interesting. In the New Testament, the resurrection is tied more to the judgment of Christ than anything else. It is tied to our salvation, of course. I'm justified because God raised Jesus from the dead. That's clearly taught in the Bible. But there is another theme that is taught over and over and over again that in our culture we've passed by, that God is judge. In Acts chapter 10, don't turn there. Acts chapter 10, when Paul is talking to Cornelius, he tells Cornelius, we studied this a few months ago, he told Cornelius, listen, you have to understand the Old Testament message was that, that the Messiah is coming to save the world, and now he's appointed us, these New Testament apostles, to go to the world and tell the world Jesus is judge of the living and the dead. That is actually the New Testament apostolic message. He's judge. Now the good news is your judge can be your savior, but he's judge. You're under the accountability of this one. The resurrection shows us that God accepted his sacrifice, God accepted who he was, he was perfected, he was the one that was given life and by his resurrection, it shows he has authority over this planet. And so he's calling you to be in submission to Jesus. The Great Commission is to go make disciples. Discipleship begins by submitting yourself to Jesus as Lord. That's his message. It's a powerful message. God is the true Lord. He determines all that happens on this earth. Now notice what happened. Let's finish it up here. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, of course they will, but others said, we'll hear you again. So Paul leaves, verse 34. Some men joined him and believed. So we have Dionysius, who was one of the, the council elders there in the Areopagus. And of course, what does Luke like to show us? Every time a woman repents, a woman repented because the gospel's for everyone. And he wants to make sure we get that point. It is for everyone. And so we have this woman, Demarius. Two conversions. Now, how do we wrap this up? Like I said, there's a lot here. 
Am I expecting you to be able to go out, go to NIU, go to a philosophy class and do this? Yes. If you listened. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> I'm joking. I want you to be able to do that one day. But I realize you got a lot of facts and a lot of things dumped on you here. But, but let me give you a couple of thoughts to, to begin a journey to shape your thinking on this. Okay, just a few thoughts in conclusion. The first thing I want you to notice that Paul engaged their belief system from the inside out. Do you see that? He didn't just stand there and say, oh, you want to know about the resurrection? Let me tell you about the resurrection. And then just say, Jesus rose from the dead and, uh, and he's judge of the living and the dead. You know, he's going to be judge. He doesn't do that. Why? Because if he does that, they're just going to add that to their existing worldview. He's not going to blow up their worldview. He needs to blow up their worldview. So, so he starts where they're at, which means that he, he studies. He begins to learn what they're thinking. He's not studying them to become them. He's studying them so that he can bring Christ to them. He wants to know them. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, we are to be here to expose the deeds of darkness. We don't enjoy them, but he's saying, hey, get to understand how people are thinking and then bring them directly to Jesus, redefining God, bringing them to Christ. Second thing to observe, he corrected their wrong views of God. Right? He, you you want to start at the right view of God. That's the proper place to start. We start with who God is, and then from there we move out. Because if we don't start there, we don't want them adding things about Jesus to their existing views of God. That's called syncretism. Very dangerous. Third thing I want you to notice, Paul proclaimed the sovereignty of God. As he's establishing God, he's establishing God as the creator the sustainer, the provider, the giver of life, right? He is, right? He's not backing down on God at all. Even though he's starting at their spot, he wants them to see who God really is. Because repentance is what? Getting people to repent of their bad view of God to embrace the right view of God. And then fourth, notice what he says about Jesus, that he's the judge of the living and the dead. That's an interesting part of the gospel message it's gotten lost, maybe it's gotten afraid of because people have maybe misused that 100 years ago, the hellfire and brimstone sermons. I mean, I remember this the, when I was five years old. I walked the altar, down to the altar at this church. This pastor painted this picture of hell. Oh, my word. So I didn't want to go there at five, man. I ran down that altar. Jesus, save me, man. I don't want to go there. <laughs> but he didn't tell me who God was. He didn't tell me who Jesus was. He just told me what hell, his vision of hell was like. That's not the message. The message is Jesus is the judge. This is God's world. But the great news is that if you fall under that authority of Jesus, there is hope and salvation and transformation and no fear of judgment. Because the very judge can be your defense attorney, which would be incredible in a court if, you're, if the judge was defending you. Be awesome. And that's what Jesus is. And, that, and so those are the things Jesus, it's kind of, did I have a, do I have a last point up there? Is there one more after he's the judge? This is where the sickness is kicking in. Is that the last point? That's the last point. Okay, good. All right. It's the last point on here, but I have something down here, and I didn't remember if it was a point or a reflection on me. So, all right. And so the only way to be prepared for the day is to repent. So here's my prayer for you. 
As I think about this, I don't want you to live in sin. But I do want you to live among sinners. But I don't want you to live in sin. I don't want you to participate in the deeds of darkness, but I want you to live as children of light, exposing the deeds of darkness. I don't want you to love the world, but I do want you to take the love of God to this world. This is why we're here. We don't want to live in sin, but we've got to live among sinners. We don't want to participate in the deeds of darkness to show people that we're cool, but we're going to expose the deeds of darkness. We want to live as children of light. And we don't want to love the world, but we do know one thing. God loves the world. He's made that clear. And he wants us to bring his love to this world. This passage is one that can help us do it. And I would challenge you now to meditate on what Paul said, to, to just start letting these words go back and restudy this again and again, study it in, in other contexts, read commentaries, do other things, because I think... This passage will help us live among sinners as children of light, bringing in the love of God to the world. Let's pray. God, it's overwhelming sometimes to think about these moments. You called Paul to do that. You didn't necessarily call us at this point in time to do that, but you recorded this so that it would shape us and challenge us. Lord, may it do that. May it cause us to understand that our work of evangelism has gotten tougher, God. We need help. We need help. We need to know how to establish the worldview. Would you guide us in this, God? Would you give us wisdom? Would you not make us afraid of this, but, but embrace it with joy? Lord, may we trust that your spirit will work within us to give us wisdom. May we so reflect on your word that it is ready and present at a moment's notice to be able to share the truth as need be. And Lord, may we live among sinners as children of light, exposing the deeds of darkness and sharing your love for this world with those around us. Lord, that's just not a saying or a phrase or a platitude, Lord. Let that be real here, that we might shine your light boldly. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, bible.org.